We're in Mark chapter 12. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, I hope you brought your Bibles to church. Yes, you get extra credit points in heaven when you bring your Bibles to church, just for the record. You get extra, if they're physical and not a digital, you get extra, extra credit points. There you go. So a couple of announcements really quick. Uh, We're going to have a meeting this afternoon, 5 p.m., for all the guys in the church that just love our church and you want to serve and uh, you want to help out, uh, please meet us this afternoon, 5 p.m. We're going to meet in the gym, and uh, I hope that you'll come out, and we need a lot of help. There's a lot of stuff to do. So uh, also, we are having this weekend a marriage retreat. It's not too late for you to sign up for that. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm super looking forward to it. Yeah. So uh, if, you, if you have questions, uh, even if you've signed up and you have questions, um, will you see Tracy? Tracy, will you raise your hand? Tracy's got all the answers. So you go, all the answers related to the marriage retreat and otherwise. Yes, she's got them, all of them. So see her. And then uh, this Wednesday, I want to make this announcement. We have Bible studies on Wednesdays for every age group. Uh, this Wednesday, we're going to move our service time. Instead of from 7 to 8, it's going to be from 6.30 to 7.30. So make that note. Uh, we'd love to see you guys come out. We're hoping that this will make it easier for, especially those of you who have kids, to come out and hang out with us on Wednesday. So Mark chapter 12. Uh, my sermon title today is So Close But So Far Away. So Close But So Far Away. How many of you have a So Close But So Far Away story? Like it was a fit, you almost reeled in the fish, and it was. It just keeps growing every time you tell the story. But it got away last second, and it hurts. It hurts. Maybe you had the lottery ticket, and you were two numbers off, and you were about to, like, tell your boss really what to do with it. But you, miss, you missed out, and so you're so close. And it's tragic. It kind of hurts when you're so close but so far away. And really, it's just a matter, in a lot of these instances, it's a matter of inches. You know, it's a matter of moments that you just missed out on the situation. And a lot of times, just missing out on something ever so slightly can lead to destruction. I'll give you an example. If you ever, God forbid this ever happened to any of you, but if you're ever stranded in a desert, in the middle of the Sahara Desert, uh, your mind is going to tell you, my goal, I don't know where I'm at, but I'm just going to walk in a straight line and eventually I'll get out of this desert. That's a bad plan, okay? Let me tell you why. One of your legs is slightly, ever so slightly, shorter than the other. And so you think you're walking in a straight line, but actually what's happening, you're walking in a ginormous circle. So you'll just end up right back where you are, okay? If you ever got in a rocket ship, and you're like, I'm gonna go to the moon. Elon Musk and I, we're gonna fly to the moon. If you're off just a fraction of a degree, you will miss the planet entirely, Okay, so close, but so far away. We got to be diligent. And that's what we see with the religious leaders. We've been talking for a couple weeks about this group of people known as the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. This makes up the Jewish ruling class. These are the the most religious people. They, They have the highest levels of authority in Jewish culture. And they were so close to Jesus. They were so close to the truth. They were so close to the king, and they missed it entirely. And so we're going to explore that a little bit more today. Mark chapter 12. Let's all stand together in honor of the reading of God's word. Just as a point, why we stand every Sunday is because we believe that these aren't just words made up by a man. These are words that are inspired by God. 
And Jesus once said 2,000 years ago, he said, heaven and earth will pass away. The Roman Empire will pass away. Uh, Nations will rise and fall. Kings will come and go. All that stuff. But my words will never pass away. Here we are 2,000 years later and billions of people around the planet every single Sunday open this word and base their life on it. That's powerful right there. That's why we stand every Sunday. Uh, Rome, or Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug it out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the, of the, uh, to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. They took it, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them. They hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He sent many others, some they beat and others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. I pray today that we will, we will see how prone we are to get off course, that we will become more diligent in aligning ourselves to the truth, and that we will uh, not have the same tragic fate as these wicked farmers. Let's pray. Father, we all come together today, we bow our heads, we close our eyes because there's part of all of us in this room that we respect you. And Lord, we understand that you can give to us what we cannot give or get for ourselves. And so Lord, I pray today as we come and we honor you, we respect you, um, we submit to you, Lord, that you'll bless us, that you'll supply for us what our soul is really longing for. Uh, Help us to see, Lord, the truth today and help us to apply it to our lives. As you stand there with your eyes closed and your head bowed, take a second and silently say a prayer for the people around you. I'd encourage you to say a prayer for those who may be watching online. Take a moment and pray for yourself. And let's also pray this morning for the events that are happening in Ukraine right now and all the people affected. Father, speak to us. We're ready to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Mark 12, 1, uh, Jesus began to speak to them in parables. Uh, The them there are the chief priests, the uh, scribes and the elders. Uh, this makes up the ruling Jewish class. These are the people that have the most authority in Jewish culture. Uh, and they're supposed to be experts in religion, on life and living and faith. And they are ticked at Jesus. You'll remember a few days ago, Jesus had uh, come into town. We read this a few weeks ago. He uh, came into town like a king to the capital city of Jerusalem, the holy city. And uh, he presents himself as king. All the people, they're honoring him as king. And Jesus doesn't go to the palace. He's, he's, he goes to the temple because as a king, he's ruling from the sacred place. When he goes into the temple, he sees it's all a mess. There's a lot of corruption and chaos going on. And he kicks everybody out of the temple, which really offended these people because these are the people that are in charge of the temple. This is their territory. 
And so Jesus has come in and just upset their whole system on the most important week of the year. And they are very upset about it. And so that happened on a Monday. We are reading what happens on a Tuesday. And so on Tuesday, Jesus comes back to the temple. It's completely calm and peaceful. The day before, it was a den of robbers. Today is a house of prayer. And Jesus is teaching. He's walking around the place like a boss. He's the king in his courtyard. The religious leaders don't appreciate it at all. And so they make a beeline to Jesus. They're going to put Jesus in their place. But what we read last week, with one word, Just with one word, Jesus shut him up. And now this week, Jesus is going to teach him a lesson. So Mark chapter 12, verse 1, he began to teach them in parables. And he he teaches a parable is a way to describe a very deep spiritual truth in a way that everybody can understand. This is the words that he's about to use would have been very, very familiar to the people he's speaking with. I'll show you that in a second. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Now, I want you to remember, hold on to these elements, okay? We've got a vineyard, we've got a fence, we've got a a dugout pit for a wine press, and we have a watchtower. So hold on to that. What Jesus is doing in your Bible, what you'll see in that passage, those words are probably bold or italics, or maybe there's a footnote by it, because Jesus is quoting an Old Testament passage. The Old Testament passage I want to take you back to, I want, you to, I want to read it to you. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. Verse 1. Isaiah says this, I will sing about the one I love. Isaiah is singing about the one he loves. The one he loves is God. A song about my loved one's vineyard. So he says, God, who I love, owns a vineyard. The one I loved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. The very fertile hill is the same hill that Jesus is standing on 600 years later, Jerusalem, uh, right there in the temple. Verse 2, the owner, my beloved God, broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and he planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it, even dug out a wine press there. Do you see the parallels? Same elements. Okay, so... So all of a sudden, Jesus is speaking this, and the religious leaders, they know their Bible, and so immediately they go back to Isaiah chapter 5. And so what Jesus is doing here is the same message that Isaiah had for the people in his day. Jesus is going to convey that same message to the religious leaders of his day. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. God expected good fruit, and he just got not just worthless, the, the literal translation of that word is stinking. He got stinking fruit. Verse 3, so now, residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. Jerusalem, the holy city, that's the fertile hill. This is the place that was supposed to bring an abundant spiritual harvest that would bless all the nations. Judah are the workers. These are the farmers that are supposed to tend and keep the garden. These are the men who are supposed to be, be fruitful and multiply and supposed to bring blessings to all the nations. And, and God says, okay, you judge between me and my vineyard. You judge between me and these men who are supposed to do this good work that's supposed to bless the nations. Who's at fault? Because I expected good grapes and I got stinking grapes. Who's at fault here? Verse four, what more could I have done for my vineyard? Now, I want you to hold on to that phrase. This is so important. This phrase is so important for our message today. What more could I have done than I did for my vineyard? Why then? I expected a yield of good grapes, 
Did it yield worthless grapes? Verse five, now I will tell you what I'm about to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will tear down its walls and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. The owner curses the vineyard. He says, I'm going to tear down the walls, the protective hedges. I'm going to tear them down. And this vineyard is going to be trampled by outsiders. And it's going to become a wasteland. Nothing will grow there. It won't even rain on it. It's going to be swallowed up by weeds and thorn bushes. Verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, the plant he delighted in. He expected justice and he saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but he heard cries of despair. And so just to unpack this, the nation of Israel is the vineyard, perfectly positioned on a fertile hill to bring an abundant spiritual harvest to the nations. The plant, the means by which the fruit is produced, are the men of Judah. The fruit that God wanted to see was righteousness, right relationships between men flowing out of a right relationship with God. Uh, So what does righteousness look like? It looks like peace among men. It looks like joy. It looks like hope. It looks like generosity. It looks like love. That's what God wanted to see. He wanted to see justice. Justice is removing the obstacles to righteousness. Justice is as a farmer goes out and tends his his crop and he pulls up all the weeds that would choke out the fruit. Uh, Justice is pulling out all the weeds that would choke out righteousness. And so justice is fighting against injustice. Justice is making things right. And so the fruit he wanted to see was righteousness and justice. The fruit that he saw was injustice. He saw bloodshed and violence and greed and hatefulness. The the fruit that he did see were cries of despair. Instead of peace and joy and hope and love, he saw anxiety and depression and poverty. Yeah, we got to be a little bit of Bible nerds today. I want you to see this is a poem, okay, that Isaiah is writing. And we can't see it in the English because it's written in Hebrew, but it's just like a poem like roses are red, violets are blue, that kind of a poem. So it rhymes. Now I want you to see the similarity of these words. It's going to help us understand what Jesus is doing today. The word, the Hebrew word for righteousness, it's is letztika. Letztika. The Hebrew word for cries of despair is tezika. Can you see the similarities? Sounds the same, kind of looks the same. The, the Hebrew word for justice is lamishpat. The Hebrew word for injustice is mishpak. Can you see the similarities? Can you hear the similarities? Okay. Is it possible, here's the lesson, is it possible that if our life isn't properly aligned, we will do what we think is righteousness, but it will only result in cries of despair? Is it possible if, we, if our soul isn't centered on truth that we could confuse what we say is justice and it's actually injustice? Let me give you an example. Right now in Ukraine, Russia is invading Ukraine. Okay? From our perspective, all the news that we watch, our Twitter feed, our Facebook feed, from our perspective, that's injustice and probably rightfully so. Probably rightfully so. But uh, interview, there was an interview recently with uh, Vladimir Putin, the uh, president, is that what he calls himself, of Russia? Something like that. Okay, so he said recently in an interview, his goal in Ukraine, and this is the language he used, is to de-Nazify Ukraine. 
de-Nazify Ukraine. He says the, the people in Ukraine are actually Russians and they're being oppressed by this tyrant class and he's trying to save the Russians in Ukraine from all the evil leaders in Ukraine. And so from our perspective, what he's doing, what the Russians are doing is injustice, but what he's saying is, no, I'm actually practicing justice. The West, United States, European Union, NATO, they're moving eastward into Eastern Europe. And one of their goals, they stated in 2014, one of their goals is to make Ukraine part of NATO. Now, for us, that makes that we, we think that's working righteousness because that's going to encourage peace in the region. If we have, if the West has more of a presence, if NATO has more of a presence in the region, that's going to increase peace. So we think that's righteousness. But the Russians cry out in despair and say, no, your presence in our region is an act of an aggression to us. That's not justice, that's injustice, that's not righteousness, that's resulting in cries of despair. From my perspective, from the outside looking in, I think Vladimir Putin is not a nice guy. I think he's an evil guy, right? From my perspective, that makes sense to us. But the people in Russia, what do they say about him? Many of them think he's a savior. Many of them think he's a national hero. Okay, here's my point, not of who's right or who's wrong in this. Here's my point, here's my point. Our default is to assume that we're right. Our default is to assume that we are workers of justice. Now, we shouldn't, here's a lesson, we shouldn't be too confident in our own righteousness. We shouldn't be too confident in our own sense of justice. Because the people in Isaiah's day, they thought they were practicing righteousness, but it only resulted in cries of despair. The people in Isaiah's day, they thought that they were practicing justice, but they were actually shedding blood. They thought that they were producing a good fruit for God, but actually all they were producing was sour grapes. So let's go back with that understanding of Isaiah chapter 5. Jesus hyperlinks Isaiah chapter 5 to tell this parable in Mark chapter 12. So let's go back to Mark chapter 12. Jesus says, once again, God has set up his vineyard on the fertile hill of Jerusalem, The owner has once again perfectly positioned it to produce an abundant crop. So he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. Tenant farming in Jesus' day in this region was huge. It was everywhere. What happened? Uh, The Roman Empire came in, conquered this region, and all of the land prices went up. And it it basically... uh, got to the point where the Jewish people couldn't afford the land. As a result, Roman landowners would come and they would buy this land that was overpriced, and then they would rent it out to Jewish people who had once owned this land. It was in their family. They'd rent it out to them to be tenant farmers. And so these Jewish people, they would work the land, and they came into some sort of contract with the landowner that they, the landowner would get a percentage, usually a very big, big percentage, 40 or 50% of the harvest. Okay, so this particular landowner, he sends his servant to get his proceeds from the harvest. The farmers in Jesus' day, uh, they didn't really appreciate this practice. They didn't like it at all because from their perspective, uh, the Romans don't have any right to be there. This is their ancestral land. And on top of that, uh, the, the landowners were often so greedy and oppressive that it just wasn't fair in their mind. But it seems like this landowner is different, right? Because he has set up this vineyard 
to, it's perfectly positioned to produce a huge harvest. And he's also giving the farmers plenty of time to produce that harvest. But the farmers didn't see it that way. They didn't see this owner as being any different than the other. So verse three, the servant comes, but they took the servant and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. Now, from our perspective, these farmers are wicked, right? They've broke, they broke the contract with the landowner and they have done something illegal by rebelling against the landowner and hurting his servant. But from the farmer's perspective, can't you see how from their perspective, they would see what they're doing as just? That this, this landowner, he doesn't have any right over this land. This is my ancestral land. He didn't do any of the work. I did all the work, and so he shouldn't get anything. Verse four, again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. Some they beat, and others they killed. As history unfolds, as a story unfolds, we, it becomes more clear who is in the wrong. These farmers are doing what is wicked. Verse six, he still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. Now, from our perspective, this owner, owner is doing something stupid, right? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Uh, these wicked farmers, they don't deserve a second chance, much less a 15th chance. They deserve death. But from the owner's perspective, it is right to be long-suffering with his tenants. From the owner's perspective, he is committed to exhausting all of his resources to make things right. From the owner's perspective, condemnation is the very last resort. Now, I want to make a note here. We're going to come back to it. I want you to hold on to it. Does anybody know the Greek word for son? S-O-N. Does anybody know the Greek word? You will get extra, extra credit points if you know it. No. If you're here at first service, you don't get to say it. The Greek word for son is ben, B-E-N. Do we have any bens here? See? There you go. You are the hero of the story. Unfortunately, you're about to be murdered, and I apologize. <laughs> Verse 7. Those tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him the inheritance will be ours. And so the farmers, they aren't content with the agreed upon, the contractually agreed upon percentages. And even more than that, they don't want to renegotiate. Instead, they want the land for themselves. They don't want a boss. They want to be the boss. And in their mind, as demented as this is, it makes absolutely no sense. In their mind, if they can kill the son, then the land will belong to them. There's absolutely no rhyme or reason to that line of thinking, but that's what they believe. This is why I got out of the rental game, because tenants are crazy. Amen? Brock says amen. Verse 8, so they seized him, killed him, threw him out of the vineyard. So the kind and generous and patient landowner, his profits have been stolen from him, and now, even worse, his beloved one and only son has been taken from him. They violently seized the Ben. I'm sorry, Ben. They violently seized the Ben, brutally killed him, heartlessly threw him into the gutter to die and rot and be eaten by wild animals. Verse nine, what then will the owners of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. He will give the vineyard to others. Now there's a parallel passage of the same exact uh, story. In the parallel passage, Jesus asked the rhetorical question, what should be done to these wicked farmers? And the religious people, the people that Jesus is talking about in this parable, 
They're so oblivious, they don't know he's talking about them. They respond in this way, Matthew chapter 21, verse 41. He will completely destroy those terrible men. That's what he should do. In other translations, it says, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he will lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his fruit at harvest. Okay, so what's this parable about? This is the sequel to Isaiah's parable. Jesus hyperlinks by using the same exact imagery in the very first line of his parable. So he's connecting these two thoughts. In Isaiah's parable, God had placed his people in a beautiful vineyard, and he had perfectly set up this vineyard to produce a harvest that would bless the nations. So much so that he rhetorically asked the question, what more could I have done? But at harvest time, God inspects what was produced, and he doesn't find good grapes He finds stinking grapes. He doesn't find righteousness. He finds despair. He doesn't find justice. He finds bloodshed. Not litzdaka, tezaka. Not lemishpat, but mishpak. He doesn't find what he intended to find. And as a result, he allowed the protective hedges. The walls of Jerusalem came tumbling down. The evil Babylonian empire, just a few years after Isaiah said this parable, that Babylonian empire comes into Jerusalem, burns it to the ground, and tears down the temple. Jesus says, God has once again set up his vineyard on the fertile hill. He allowed time for the Jewish religious leaders, the workers, the farmers. He allowed time for them to produce a harvest. But whenever God sent his servants to check on his crop and to make sure that they were producing good fruit, whenever they sent, God sent one of the prophets the religious leaders treated, him, treated them shamefully. Isaiah, they sawed him in half. Uh, Zechariah, they stoned to death. John the Baptist, who was the forerunner to Jesus, what they do to him? They cut his head off. They treated him shamefully. And as one last attempt, God sent his one and only beloved son. Why? Because God exhausts every resource to make things right. Because our God, his last, very last resort is condemnation. What more could he do? What more could he do? But they despised the son. They arrested him. They nailed him to a cross. And they left his cold, dead body outside the city to be eaten by wild animals and rot. As a result, Jesus says, God will bring judgment on the people. In Isaiah's day, God had the temple destroyed. In Jesus' day, God had the temple system destroyed. You see, just 40 years after Jesus told this parable, the Roman Empire came to Jerusalem to put down a revolt that was happening there. And in the process of them putting down the revolt, they burned Jerusalem to the ground, and they tore the temple stone from stone. Not one stone was left on top of the other. And on top of that, they took all of the documents in the temple and they destroyed them. Now, why that's important is because from that time on, no Jewish person could trace their lineage back to Levi. And you had to be from the tribe of Levi in order to be a legitimate priest. And that's why there are no more chief priests. That's why there is no more temple in Jerusalem. That's why there are no more sacrifices in the temple because the system has been utterly destroyed, just like Jesus said it would. And so the place, the place where God would produce a harvest, he would produce good grapes that would bless the nations, 
the place has been changed. It's no longer in the temple. It's no longer on the fertile hill. He's given, been, he's given the vineyard to other farmers. Who are the other farmers? It's us. He's given the responsibility to tend and keep the kingdom. He's given the responsibility to be fruitful and multiply and bless the nations. He's given it to us. Now, I'll talk more about that in a few weeks. I want to get back to this parable and what it means for us. This whole teaching, the religious leaders had no idea who Jesus was talking to until Jesus says this, Mark chapter 12, verse 10. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, a lot of imagery going on here. The religious leaders picked up on it real quick. You see, uh, it, there was a, a cultural reference here to builders. Builders, they immediately knew, re- referred to them. Uh, you see, all throughout the Old Testament, and even in this day, uh, there was an allusion to the Jewish re- uh, religious leaders that they had a responsibility from God to build God's kingdom. And it was their job to inspect all the foundational elements of society to make sure that the kingdom was being built properly. And so they would inspect these stones. And so Jesus says, as the religious leaders, as the builders are inspecting stones on which the foundation of society would be built, as they're inspecting the stones, they come across this one stone and they inspect it carefully. And for whatever reason, it doesn't match their standards. And so they treat it like trash. They despise it and they throw it away. Jesus says, the stone that you rejected has actually become the chief cornerstone. Now, let me unpack this. The cornerstone is important in ancient building process. What the cornerstone was, it was a massive, strong stone that um, builders would, they would, they would perfectly square it up. And then they, before they would do anything else to the building, they would place this cornerstone in a prominent corner of the building. And all the other stones would be placed in relation to that stone. So that if one of the other stones, if the cornerstone was out of place, then the whole structure would be out of place. If their cornerstone was fragile in any way, the whole, the whole building would be fragile. And so it was so important, you had to carefully inspect, make sure that the cornerstone was placed just right and that all the other stones were placed in relation to it. You had to make sure that the cornerstone was very strong in order for the building to be very strong. So Jesus says... The rejected stone has become the cornerstone, the foundation of society, the foundation of civilization, the standard by which all other things are measured. Now, Jesus says the structure that God built on this stone that was rejected, it didn't turn out, and God did it. It says this came about from the Lord, verse 11, and it is wonderful in our eyes. What God did built on this cornerstone is a beautiful, marvelous, amazing, glorious thing. So what is the cornerstone? How is God going to turn all this thing around? Because he planted the vineyard, he put it on a fertile hill. What more could he have done to produce a harvest? But he didn't get good grapes, he got sour grapes. So how is God going to produce an abundant harvest that's going to bless the nations? Because he's working with wicked farmers. What's God going to do? How's God going to build a glorious, strong, unshakable uh, kingdom when he's working with ignorant builders who throw away the best stone? How's he going to do it? Okay, remember the Greek word for sun. What is it? What is the Greek word? This is, we just, I just told you this. What is the Greek word for sun? Ben, B-E-N. Okay. The Greek word for stone is E-Ben. It's E-Ben. Okay, so watch this. God took the murdered Ben and elevated him to be the chief E-Ben. God took the rejected son and positioned him 
as the foundational stone. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never, ever pass away. Let God be true and every man a liar. Amen? He is the rock. He is the strong tower. He is the firm foundation. And it's our job to build our life on him. Now, here's the good news today. Many of you in your life, you have planted good seeds. And a lot of times we plant good seeds and it feels like, it feels like all we reap, all we reap are sour grapes. Sometimes it feels like you can't win for losing. Sometimes it feels like when it rains, it pours. Sometimes it just feels like life is hard and then it gets harder. But here's the good news. My God will produce an abundant harvest. The grapes that may be sour right now, God will use to make the sweetest wine. My God will build an unshakable kingdom. The cornerstone that they despised and rejected and threw away, he has used to build a kingdom in which the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Because what was despised is now glorified. What was rejected is now resurrected. What the wicked tried to destroy, God restored. What the wicked tried to kill, God brought back to life. The murdered son who was thrown in the gutter has become the resurrected king who sits on the throne. Amen? Amen. Give God a hand clap. And so this is what you can be sure of today. This is what you can be sure of today. There is wickedness in the world, but God will bring the wicked to justice. There is injustice in the world, but God will make all things right. There is bad in the world, but he will turn all things. He will make all things work together for the good. So we wait. This is what we do. We wait upon the Lord. We wait upon the Lord because those, those who put their hope in the Lord will never be put to shame. Verse 12, they were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left them and went away. Here's a tragic part of this whole event. These men, these religious leaders, they were so close to Jesus. They were so close to the truth. They were so close to the kingdom of heaven but they were so far away. God had placed them in the perfectly positioned vineyard on a fertile hill. He'd given them all the resources. They had the education. They had the pedigree. They had the experience. They had everything they needed to produce an abundant crop that would bless the nations. But all they could produce was stinking, rotting fruit. It's all they could produce. They looked at their work and they saw righteousness and all God saw were cries of despair. They looked at their work and they saw justice and all God saw was injustice and bloodshed. They looked at the men and they couldn't see him as the Eben. They had the chief cornerstone. They treated it like trash and they threw it away. As a result, these wretches will be brought to a wretched end. You see, that's what happens. That's what happens if we don't see God for who he really is and respond appropriately. That's what happens. So Jesus is talking about these religious leaders, the entire parable, and they cannot see it at all. And here's the truth. We are literally no different than them. You see, we, we all like to think, if I were in that situation, I would never do that. I would never do that. The whole time they're hearing this parable about the wicked farmers, they're thinking to themselves, I would never do that. And yet, isn't that exactly what they did? 
God sent the servants, he sent the prophets all throughout the Old Testament to warn the religious leaders, hey, you're, you're producing a stinking harvest. This isn't what God wants. And they look back on their forefathers, the, their predecessors, and they would say, oh, I would never do that. They built statues in the temple of Isaiah. And they would look at the statue and they say, could you believe that our forefathers did such a thing? And yet, what did they do? They did worse. They killed God's one and only son. And this is what you say. This is what you say. I would never do that. I would never do that. But here's the truth. How many sermons have you listened to and thought to yourself, man, I wish my mother-in-law were here because she really needed to hear that. And the whole time, God was trying to talk to you. How many, how many servants, how many prophets has God sent into your life to speak hard truth to you so that you would produce a harvest of good fruit? How many prophets did he send into your life and you didn't receive their truth? Instead, you rejected them, you despised them, and you threw them out of your life. Isn't it possible today that you're too confident in your own sense of righteousness? Isn't it possible today that you're too confident in your own sense of justice? Jordan Peterson is a guy I listen to a lot. He's got a couple books that I've really enjoyed. And he said this, I heard this the other day and it stuck with me. He said here, this is the lesson from the Holocaust. This is a lesson from the Holocaust. We are all Nazis. Everyone, everyone has within them the potential to do evil, evil things and commit genocide against their neighbors and enjoy it. Everyone has that potential. And so here's the charge today. Here's the charge today. It's not to try harder. That's what you'll be tempted to do. You'll be tempted to leave out of here and say, I'm going to try harder. That's not the job. These religious leaders, nobody was trying harder than them. Nobody. If you compared your spiritual resume with theirs, you would fail. If you're grading on a curve, you would fail. It's not about trying harder. It's about having the right focus. It's about having the right foundation. Understand that there is potential in you to produce the greatest spiritual harvest. There is also potential within you to do the greatest evil you could imagine. And so we've got to be diligent. The, 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 the vineyard owner went away for a long time. The reason he had to go away for a long time because it takes five years. Once you plant a vineyard in this day, it took five years to produce a harvest that was worth anything. And so he went away to give the farmers time to produce a harvest. Now, this is what the farmers had to do in that five years. They had to diligently tend and keep the vine. Because if, if, they, if they were negligent in keeping the vine, then after five years, after all this work, they could produce a stinking grape harvest. How tragic to be so close, to do all the work, and to be so far away. How tragic to stand before God on harvest day, to stand before God on judgment day, and hear, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. How tragic. And you say back, but I'm a Christian, because that's what the majority of people in our culture say, is it not? I'm a Christian. I got dunked in some water. I said a prayer. I came to church every now and again. I, I memorized some Bible verses. I put some money in the offering plate. 
This is what the people say. And Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And they say, but Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Any of y'all ever cast out a demon? Well, you're not doing as good as these people. And what did Jesus say from Depart from me. I never knew you. How tragic to be so close to the truth, to be so close to the kingdom, to be so close to Jesus and miss him entirely. So what must we do, friends? We've got to honor the son. We've got to respect the son. We've got to say, Jesus, you are greater than me. Jesus, you are wiser than me. Jesus, you are stronger than me. Jesus, you're my Savior. You're my Lord. And if you don't save me, if you don't leave me, if you don't lead me, then I'm, I'm destined for destruction. I need you, Jesus. It starts with respecting the Son. And then every day, this is what you got to do. You got to align yourself to the cornerstone. Every day. Because here's the truth. In our eyes, Justice and injustice perpetrated by us, it doesn't look much differently. In our eyes, it's real easy to think we're practicing righteousness when actually all we're producing is cries of despair. And so every single day, I've got to go back to the one that God himself instituted as the standard by which everything else is measured. And I've got to measure my life in, according to his standard. Not, not according, amen, not according to the cultural standards, not according to what the blogger says or the YouTuber says or what Instagram says or what Twitter says or what your best friend says, according to what Jesus says. And so I wonder today, how diligently are you tending your garden? How closely are you watching the life that you're building? Because friends, listen, if you just think, I'm going to walk in a straight line and I'll end up to Jesus, one of your legs is shorter than the other one. You know what you got to do if you're, if you're trapped in the desert? You know what you got to do? You can't walk in a straight line. You got to find the North Star. And you got to put your focus on that star and you got to walk to that star. Jesus says, I am the light. Follow me. Follow me. And so I wonder today, how diligent you, are you in your prayer life? How often do you sit down with brothers and sisters in Christ and you talk about Jesus openly and honestly and say, hey, will you show me where I'm off base here? How often do you open up the scriptures and you say, Lord, search me and know me and show me if there's any wicked way in me? How often do you do that? How seriously do you take what we do on Sunday morning? Because this is what Sunday morning is. Sunday morning is aligning yourself to the cornerstone. How, how seriously do you take what we do? Because here's the truth. If you say, oh, I'm just going to walk in a straight line, you'll drift. And you know what? We don't drift towards God. We drift away from God. The, the farmers didn't drift into generosity. They drifted into greed. The tenants didn't drift into honoring their landowner. Instead, they drifted into despising him. You won't drift into God. You'll drift away from God. And so Christians, believers, believers, be so diligent diligent in respecting the sun and lining yourself up to the stone. Now, I know there are people here today, and in your heart, as I've been talking, you know in your heart that you're far from God. And maybe you've got everybody else fooled. You got your friends fooled, your family fooled. Maybe sometimes you can even convince yourself, but in your heart, you know 
you know that your, produ- your life is not producing the righteousness that God requires. In your heart, you know that. And right now, as I'm talking to you, because you know I'm talking to you, because your armpits are starting to sweat a little bit. The devil, who is a liar, he's the father of lies, he's whispering in your ear right now, and he's telling you it's too late. If that's you today, I want you to be reminded of the vineyard owner who sent one servant who was treated shamefully, and what did he do? He sent another servant, and then another servant, and then another servant, and then another servant. And when none of the servants worked, what did he do? He sent his one and only son. Because our God, our God, will exhaust all of his resources to make things right with you. Our God, his very last resort is condemnation. That is not what he wants for you. He was willing to give up everything that he could in order to make things right. What more could he do to show you that he loves you, to show that there's forgiveness, to show that there's a second chance? Listen, friends, as long as there's breath in your lungs, there is hope for your life. And so this is what you need to do. Respect the son. And line yourself up to the stone. We're going to sing a song of invitation. If you're here today and you're far from God, don't put off the best thing that will ever happen to you. You are so close to the kingdom. It's not about being right. It's not about being perfect. It's not about never making any mistakes. It's about loving Jesus with all your heart and following him in all your ways. That's what it's about. It's all about Jesus. So this is what I would encourage you to do. Come to Jesus today. I'll be standing up here. I would love to tell you about your next steps. Let's all stand. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. It's trustworthy and true. It's been true forever. It's always going to be true. And we can build our life on it. Father, I pray that you'll forgive us for all the ways that we fall short, for the things that we've done and the things we've left undone. Forgive us, Lord, when we lean on our own righteousness when we trust our own sense of justice and we don't submit to you. Forgive us, Lord, when we despise the sun, when we reject the cornerstone and we try and do things our own way. I pray right now that you'll cut all of us to the heart, convict us of our sins. And Lord, help us to be so diligent, so diligent to honor the sun and to build our life on the stone. Help us, Lord, help us, Lord, so that we don't have the same fate as those wicked farmers. Lord, if there's any person in this room who's far from you, give them the courage, give them the strength to surrender their life to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a time, we sing a song at the end of every service. This is a time of celebration. It's a time of um, invitation, and it's a time of remembrance. If you're here today and you're carrying any sort of burden at all, any sort of burden, you can come and kneel at this altar and one of our prayer warriors will pray over you. If you're here today and you're far from God, I'm up here. Dave's in the back. We'd love to talk to you. On either side of the stage, we also have emblems. It's a cup of juice and a cup also has a cracker in it. These things represent the body and blood of Christ. As you're here today, be reminded that Jesus, that God did everything he could do. He exhausted all of his resources to make you right with him. And so let's celebrate that as we sing this song. Come. Come.